You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. Today, we're going to explore the impact of the UN's Biodiversity Treaty on International Research Collaborations and the Nagoya Protocol, a supplement to the treaty that has garnered global attention and sparked ongoing discussions on its implications for scientific endeavors worldwide. The Nagoya Protocol, an international agreement born out of the Convention on Biodiversity, has the power to reshape the landscape of scientific research. Since its inception in October 2014, this UN treaty has been signed by almost every country, setting the stage for a new era of collaboration and conservation. Joining us today is Dr. Mukul Ranjan, a science advisor for innovation and technology transfer at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, also known as NIAD. With a specialization in complex deals, he plays a vital role in fostering collaborations between the public, private, academic, and nonprofit sectors for NIAD. Additionally, he handles international technology transfer and maintains crucial relationships with leading players in the pharmaceutical, biotech, and nonprofit foundations. Dr. Ranjan brings a wealth of expertise and insights to our discussion, making him the perfect guest for our exploration of the UN's Biodiversity Treaty's impact on international research collaborations and tech transfer. Welcome, Dr. Ranjan. I'm so excited to have you here on the air. Hi, Lisa. It's great to be here. It's a great opportunity to talk about a subject that's close to my heart. Well, this is a really fascinating topic. And so I'm very excited to have this opportunity to talk to you. And so I thought maybe the best place to start things off today is if you could give us a brief overview of the Nagoya Protocol and its purpose and also talk a little bit about how it's evolved since its inception. Sure. So the Nagoya Protocol is a supplementary agreement to the Convention on Biological Diversity. That uh, is a multilateral UN treaty, uh, which is almost 30 years old. Uh, The Nagoya Protocol is a supplement that's about 10 years old. Uh, It was put in place because the Convention on Biological Diversity was a very contentious uh, treaty. Uh, Many parties were not in agreement. So they they put in a lot of... uh, like waffling language, and people didn't know how to implement that. So over the years, nothing really much was happening with that. So about 10 years ago, uh, people around the world decided we need to do something to fix that. And the Nagoya Protocol was a a supplement that came out of a meeting in Nagoya, Japan, where the parties to the CBD met, and they decided we need to put in place something more stringent that would provide greater clarity on how this is to be implemented, what does it mean for the the implementing parties, and what kind of responsibilities each each organization, party, recipient, researcher would have. It also spelled out for the first time what research, uh, how research fits into this. Uh, It's defined what genetic resources are, and it tried to make the process more transparent, which which was the main purpose of of the Nagoya Protocol. 
Now, have there been any changes or updates to the protocol over the past 10 years or has it just, is it exactly the same? It, the protocol is exactly the same. What's really changed is that in the last uh, four or five years, countries have really started implementing this. Uh, and some countries were very quick to implement it. Uh, others are slower. And, you know, because we're dealing with over 100 countries in the world, um, uh, about 130 some countries are, are parties to the Nagoya Protocol. And the EU was one of the first to really implement it. So they were very quick in putting in place rules and stuff. The rest of the world is slowly starting to implement it. But there's a kind of snowball a movement starting to happen, which is making it visible to scientists. So for the last four or five years, scientists have suddenly become aware that when they go out and try to do international research, they get hit with these new uh, you know, agreements that they have to sign or permissions they have to get, and people are not used to this. So suddenly it's become something that we are starting to see traction on and starting to see uh, impacts on our international research efforts. So any idea why all of a sudden this has started to pick up steam in the last four or five years? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it's because a certain amount of time had passed since the the treaty was ratified in, in 2014, and it takes time to, to implement these things. Uh, as, as the European Union implemented it uh, rather rapidly, they would go out and ask other countries, like, we want to do research in your place. Do you have a, you know, a country focal point? And they would be like, no. So over time, if you keep asking that question again and again, the local countries then start to decide, like, well, we need to put something in place because we are getting asked. So I, I think this thing is going through these, these iterations. Uh, countries like uh, India, Brazil, they had earlier versions of it. They have refined them. So at the national level, these these laws are getting refined, updated, but at the Nagoya um, uh, treaty level, it's not really changing. Interesting. Well, it's fascinating. And, you know, you mentioned scientists going out internationally and starting to do research and finding that they have to comply with the Nagoya protocol. So can you talk a little bit about some of the significant ways the treaties influenced international scientific research? And has there been anything that's been unexpected in terms of outcomes or challenges along the way? So I have a very specific view because I work for the National Institutes of Health and I work in infectious disease. So we are mostly dealing with pathogens, like, you know, transfer of pathogens between countries and especially during outbreaks and pandemics, you know, when you have to rapidly get get a, a sample to figure out what's causing the disease and how we can develop vaccines to it or diagnostics for it. And suddenly starting with the MERS outbreak, you know, which is sort of coincident with when this wave, the wave of implementation started happening, we started to see difficulties in trying to obtain samples. You know, so that happened in the Middle East. Then there was Zika, you know, in Brazil. Uh, we couldn't get samples out of these countries. You know, it took a lot of effort. We had to wait till the pathogen moved to another country where we could get it. And with SARS, we saw that again, you know, even though uh, the sequence was released very quickly, the actual samples from the country where it started were not available. In fact, they were never available until, you know, uh, recently. And we had to wait till either infected people came back to the U.S., or we were able to get it from other countries when the, the virus moved to, to that country. So we started to see direct impact on our work. And that's what made me get interested in this and try to figure out what's going on here. Because uh, even today at my institution, there are very few people who know about this. And we, we just put this down to, well, that was a very difficult MTA to negotiate without understanding that there are reasons why it's suddenly become difficult around the world to get samples. 
And I, I know uh, other instances, for example, there was a research project funded by, by NIH in Mexico where the scientists, uh, it was a uh, project uh, that was funded through a university and the university scientists are very good at speaking to the local communities, getting permissions, uh, having everything signed up. In fact, they were very generous with offering up IP and percentage of royalties and everything over. And even in spite of that, at the last minute, a number of international organizations got involved. They felt that that no foreigners should come in and, and uh, work on uh, material that's of indigenous uh, origin. And essentially, because of political reasons, that project got canceled. And this was after $1.3 million had wow. already been invested in it. Yeah. So, so these things can happen, you know, without you, even with you trying to do the right thing, because it's such a complex, rapidly evolving area, I think it's it's worth keeping in mind that it's it's a little tricky, you know, when you're doing research overseas today. Absolutely. And what have you seen in terms of how scientists are adapting to these new regulations? I think it depends on on where you're uh, based. Like if you're in a government institution like NIH, a lot of our research, you know, um, I did a survey recently about how NIH has been doing capacity building. And because we have these long-term relationships with the countries, you know, where we do research, we have uh, permission essentially from the government because we've been there for so long. And because we're a federal agency, we have government to government interactions. So for our scientists, that is usually the way that things get ironed out. And, and these these relationships exist pre-Nagoya, you know, pre-CBD sometimes. So for us, it hasn't been such a big challenge. But even then, we're seeing cases, like I said, in, in the case of Zika in Brazil or, uh, you know, uh, SARS-CoV-2 from China, for scientists at universities, I think they have been trying to negotiate it to the best of their ability. Sadly, there is a little uh, institutional support for them or uh, state support for them, you know, in the U.S. So they have to do it as one-offs, one by one. It takes, uh, you know, uh, sometimes months, sometimes years to get these get these permits. Um in the European Union, they have some kind of institutional support. So they have people who are trained who can negotiate on their behalf. But I think, unfortunately, U.S. scientists are kind of left out in the cold. They have to do it themselves. Um, and, and the reason I gave this presentation at the Tech Transfer Conference at, at Autumn was because my suspicion is most of the time if a scientist goes out and tries to do research and gets slapped with an agreement, they're going to turn to their, hopefully, turn to their tech transfer colleagues to try to figure out what's the best way forward. Yeah, and it must be extraordinarily frustrating for the scientists, too, because it sounds like it's really going to put a damper on their research projects and just get, you know, make things go a whole lot slower. You know, you mentioned the European Union um, was very quick once the Nagoya Protocol was um, enacted to, you know, implement it. And I wanted to ask you specifically about Germany, because it's been very proactive in educating and advising its scientists on navigating the protocol. Can you share with us some of the measures that Germany's implemented and how they've empowered their researchers to navigate the complex terrain of the protocol? Yeah, Germany has been quite proactive, but uh, I should I should mention uh, I did pick out Germany because I had a contact there who was actually a uh, U.S. Uh, 
person who's who used to work at the NIH. And so I was fortunate to be able to make that connection with her. And it also is great that Germany is so far ahead of many other countries in the European Union. But every country in the European Union has their own you know, set of rules and, and navigation systems, uh, slightly different uh, rules country by country. Uh, from my cursory review of interactions with the European Union, Germany seems to be ahead in terms of how they're training their scientists. They have a website where they have a lot of resources available and US scientists are, are welcome to take a look at that. In fact, Amber Schultz, who, who presented with me at Autumn, encourages people to reach out to them if they have questions and look over their materials. Uh, they have a lot of uh, presentations, videos that easily explain you know, how, how to navigate uh, Nagoya if you're starting to research uh, flowcharts, you know, things like that. But uh, like I said, you know, different countries within the European Union have done this differently. And I'm happy to share links to the German uh, Nagoya hub, uh, as well as some other sites that, I, that I, people can use. Yeah, that would be great. And we can put them on the Autumn website along with this episode of the podcast. And, you know, that leads me to ask you, you mentioned something about um, getting started with, you know, figuring out how to decipher this protocol. Where do you recommend scientists begin in trying to figure out what their obligations are and, and what they need to do? So the the technical answer is that there is a ABS uh, um, clearing, clearing house, you know, which is run by the Nagoya authority, by the CBD authority, which is supposed to be the repository for all the national rules, uh, as well as the points of contact that you are supposed to go there first. If you're going to work in country X, look up the laws for that country on that site, look up who the point of contact is and reach out to them to try to figure out how this is. Now, the complication with, with this whole Nagoya CBD situation is that Every country has its own flavor. So you there is no one single formula on how you should navigate this. You have to figure it out country by country. There was a recent survey done by a, a law firm in the U.S. which uh, said there are over 100 different legal uh, jurisdictions that you have to figure out. Oh, my gosh. And, and each of these, you know, they said for a law firm with trained personnel in, in uh, CBD and access and benefit sharing legislation, it would take them 20 to 25 hours of their time to figure figure that out. It's a very labor-intensive process. And when, when this uh, first started uh, hitting the news in 2010, when Nagoya was first proposed, there were a number of articles in the scientific journals by scientists who do environmental research or do research that, that they have to go to other countries and alarmed and writing article art after article saying they are confused, they don't know which uh, which ministry to go to, who to contact, how do they navigate this, and if the, if they're doing, for example, marine research, do they have to do treaties, you know, or agreements with like fifteen different countries, you know, as the as the ocean currents flow through? Oh my gosh! So it, was, it was it was very difficult for people to figure this out. Sadly, the clearinghouse does help, but it is not really up to date. It even though countries are supposed to deposit uh, materials in there, they're not often uh, up to date. So you, even though you, you may go there and look at a law, it's better to check with the country contact, which also may change, but at least you have a starting point. So the answer is you really have to do a lot of digging, but the first starting point would be to go to this uh, clearinghouse site. The other thing is I would say familiarize yourself by looking at the German uh, website. There's also a, a Learn Nagoya website, which is for run by the US uh, side. 
which gives you the basics of how to how to understand the agreement. I'll give you a link for that also. Uh, then NSF funded a workshop series in 2021 on Nagoya, and uh, they have a link to all the videos where they were talking about Nagoya. Uh, as well as uh, digital sequence information and how that may be incorporated into this. So those are some of the learning learning uh, tools that you can use to get familiar with it. But it's going to be a lot of sort of rolling up your sleeves and digging in for the country that you're going to do research in. Yeah, a lot of heavy lifting for sure is what it sounds like. And yes. um, I found it interesting. You mentioned that the U.S. has its own uh kind of website and learning material available. And and that brings me to an interesting point is that the U.S. hasn't chosen to become a party to the Nicoya Protocol. Why do you think that is or what's the the reasoning for that? Do you know? Yeah, it's, it's really, truly ironic. If you look at the history of this thing, you know, the U.S. was one of the first countries that proposed an international environmental treaty for conservation. And you remember, you know, in the 70s, late 60s, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, then environmental movement was born in the U.S. You know, it, it inspired people around the world. And we are now like sort of left out in the cold while other people have taken this forward. And so, I mean, the, the short answer is without getting into politics, the details, it, it, it's <laughs> politics, it's internal politics, yeah. you know. And unfortunately, it looks like we are not really going to be able to address this uh, because the, the the country is so divided politically that I don't think there is space for addressing something like this. You know, we, we are we are trying to deal with much bigger issues and this just falls way down in, in the totem pole in, in terms of priority. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, I don't see it getting fixed anytime and, soon. And Lisa, if I can make just one more point. So. So even though the U.S. is not a party to the Nagoya Protocol, parts of the U.S. government, uh, like the National Park Service, have actually been uh, participating in, in all of the Nagoya discussions and the CBD discussions because they're very close to the environment. You know, it's the exactly. National Park Service, yeah. right? So they actually have their own version of the CBD type policy. And the U.S. Uh, government, uh, part of the U.S. government actually practices, you know, Nagoya type policies without us being being party to the treaty. So this is not unusual. So, for example, Australia is not a party to this to Nagoya, but they also have CBD like uh, like laws, uh, not CBD, like uh, ABS laws in place. So there are a number of countries that do this, but it's 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 good to know that the U.S. Uh, entity that actually practices access and benefit sharing uh, is actual federal entity, you know. And and it's a rather interesting story. If you if you remember how the attack polymerase came about from the discovery, you know, of the Thermophilus aquaticus, it was from a deposited deposited ATCC from uh, you know uh, one of the national parks, right? From uh, Yellowstone, I think. So that discovery led to millions of dollars, lots of lawsuits, and then the Park Service was like, you know, we should get a share of this. This came from us. So they, after that happened, you know, looking at this, they decided to put in place a policy saying, if you do sort of exploratory research, you're looking at different fauna, flora, and looking for microbes in the Park Service, you need to enter into something called a crater with us. This was challenged legally and they prevailed. So it has withstood the, you know, the court system. And the Park Services Service now has a policy which says that if you do research there, you have to provide some benefit back to the Park Service. So what does this mean then for U.S. researchers in terms of their ability to participate in international collaborations to access genetic resources? 
So I think, unfortunately, what this means is that U.S. researchers are on their own. We don't have a national focal point, although there is a designated person in the State Department. And sometimes the embassies in country will help you because they can help you navigate the local government uh, officials. But we don't have a system like a national system that helps you navigate these things. We don't have procedures set up. We don't have templates for, for MATs. You know, we don't have any infrastructure that's you know nationwide that helps with this. So each institution, each investigator is essentially on their own in terms of navigating this. Uh, if you have a, uh, I think some university systems are more experienced with this. I believe the University of California system may have some some resources in place. Some of the agricultural schools that have been dealing with the plant you know transfers have dealt with this. Uh, I think much more than other institutions have. So they may have some resources. But essentially, the responsibility falls on the investigator and the criminal liabilities, the financial uh, penalties will all fall on the investigator. So th this puts them in a very difficult position. And I would urge them to sort of tread carefully, do your work ahead of time. If you plan to do international research, inv start investigating this before you write the grant, before you get the money. Plan at least six months, you know, uh, four to six months to have all the paperwork in place before you even sort of, you know, start the research. I mean, the missed opportunity costs for research in the U.S. because of all this and the fact that we're not part of the protocol is just it seems to be to me to be tremendous. Yes. And, and not just research. I mean, in my field, especially in public health, it's like a huge impediment you know, because the public health goals where the public good is actually providing medicines and figuring out what the pathogen is flies in direct contrast to like the benefit of providing you know uh, like resources to someone for for providing you with with a with a pathogen which is not a you know saving conserving biodiversity but sort of adding a monetary value to a pathogen so that you can recoup some costs but at the cost of public health you know so you're right the incentives are a little bit skewed here and and uh, there have been many environmental researchers which are saying that their research into actually uh, figuring out how, how to preserve biodiversity and documenting species before they disappear is actually, uh, you know, impeded by, by some of these rules. So it's actually counter to, you know, what, what the goals of the treaty were. Yeah, and what science is all about, too. It's, yeah. it's really frustrating. So I wanted to ask you about one aspect of the protocol, which is the requirement for prior informed consent and mutually agreed terms for accessing genetic resources. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how this impacts the sharing of scientific knowledge and the potential for innovation in the field of biodiversity research? I don't know if there's a direct link to biodiversity research. I think that link is somehow, in my mind at least, not... <laughs> Uh, not crystallized, uh, and I think we've we've moved further and further away from actually saving biodiversity uh, to now this focus on on access and benefit sharing. So the this heart of Nagoya is access and benefit sharing. So in in exchange for access to the genetic resources in a country, which is the sovereign domain of that country, for you to access that, the country says that you need to acknowledge that they have so sovereignty over it. You need to get permission from them. That permission is in the form of prior informed consent. So you apply to the country, the appropriate authority in the country. They will give you this pick. It's called a pick prior informed consent, which says that you're now free to actually start your project. The next step is you need to deposit that into the central clearinghouse, 
which uh, then gets you to the next step where you have to negotiate what benefits you will give back to the country in the form of uh, an agreement, which is called a MAT. Okay. Now, this is an unfortunate acronym because it looks very much like MTA and probably is a kind of MTA, <laughs> except it's uh, it's actually promising back specific uh, benefits to the country of origin, which gave you the pick so that you can then uh, start your research. So these two things go hand in hand. You get the permission first in the pick, then you agree to a certain amount of benefits that you will give back to the res- uh, source country in the MAT. MAT stands for mutually agreed terms. Yeah. So what do some of these um, benefits look like in terms of financial compensation, I'm assuming, is primarily what this is? And and do you have any idea what the range looks like? So uh, a lot of the MATs are confidential, so I have not seen those. But the Nagoya Protocol itself lists uh, has a list of monetary and non-monetary uh, benefits that you can promise back. Uh, now, as an academic institution or like a research institution like us, like NIH, we don't manufacture things and we don't sell things, so we don't have a revenue stream that we can promise back. Uh, we usually do non-monetary benefits, uh, which can be in the form of, uh, you know, uh, including their scientists in our research, uh, providing training, providing uh, uh, authorship if they if they contributed. Uh, so those kind of academic benefits, a lot of re- research uh, and training that that we provide for graduate students. Uh, have people go through different uh, degree requirements. So NIH has done a whole range of trainings for for scientists in the countries where we collaborate, uh, where we have we have so many students who have graduated to master's degrees, PhDs, things like that, which which can be uh, considered non-monetary benefits. We also uh, provide access to databases like our like our library, for example. If if we are re- collaborating with an institution, we'll provide them access to our library. We'll provide them access to coming to the U.S. and training in our labs. So those kind of non-monetary benefits can also also be there. And there's a whole list of those in the Nagoya Protocol that can be looked at. And I've also listed those in my my book chapter. So So looking ahead, what do you see as the future implications of the Nagoya Protocol for international research collaborations and tech transfer? So one of the things that's of particular concern is that the parties to Nagoya have been discussing the inclusion of genetic sequence information in Nagoya. So under genetic uh, you know, resources, it used to mean physical materials, right? But there has been a movement in the last few years that was sort of confused and moving back and forth for many years about whether genetic sequence information should be included in that. Now, that movement has sort of come to a head and in 2022, there was a decision that genetic sequence information would be included, and it would be done in a multilateral mechanism for benefit sharing from the use of de- digital sequence information, uh, and in some kind of global fund would be created for providing that. How that's going to play out is not clear, but it raises concerns for us. Uh, I, I think the U.S. government is pretty concerned, and uh, we as a, a, a Infectious Disease Research Institute are very concerned because access to genetic information is very critical for uh, for studying pathogens, uh, for also just genetic sequence analysis, for evolution, for biodiversity. Uh, you know, if you start doing this uh, uh, case by case, for it'll just slow research down so much. I mean, one one of the big things we learned from the SARS outbreak 
was the the benefit of genetic sequence was not just that you had that one sequence, but you kept seeing the variants coming up and that you could do the evolution of those. You could see where the resistance was building, which which strains were worse, and, and all of that was done real time. Now, imagine if you had to negotiate for months with a, with a party before they could deposit that sequence, how that would impact uh, a pandemic response. And this is just one instance, you know. We'd still be in the pandemic, uh, yes, you know, yes. if that were in place when SARS-CoV-2 hit worldwide. So it's really, it's really very scary because like you said, it's going to bring a lot of scientific research down in terms of speed and um, it's really going to slow it down. One of the things that, I, you know, I've been rather pleased with as in the last uh, decade or two decades is the movement towards open science. You know, when when I started out as a scientist, a lot of the journals were inaccessible unless you belong to a you know library that was well-funded because they were very expensive, you know. And today you can really go online and download almost any paper. And this is not just in the U.S., it's for anybody around the world. And this is part of the open science movement, you know. And I'm very proud that NIH, you know, spearheaded this with a number of other institutions in, in the U.S., uh, we also had like lots of open source uh, databases like GenBank, which are open to everybody. Uh, anybody in the world can go in there, do their analysis, upload their sequence, you know, download other people's sequences. So what does what does uh, you know sort of putting a proprietary tag on on genetic sequences mean for these kind of open science initiatives? And that's something that we have to grapple with, you know, as Nagoya comes into place and genetic sequences get included in there. Yeah, this is going to be really fascinating to watch and very important to watch as well. So, Dr. Ranjan, I wanted to ask you, considering the impact of the Nagoya Protocol, what steps do you believe should be taken to foster effective international collaboration in biodiversity research while addressing the concerns raised by the treaty? Um, so, so if I can just rephrase that a little bit, I would I would say let's not narrow this to just biodiversity research. It's all international research that deals with any any biological organism, plant or or animal. You know, so all of that I, I would say we need to get better prepared and better uh, understand the 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 terrain that we are dealing with. And this is a rapidly changing terrain. So there are over a hundred jurisdictions around the world. There are more being added every year. They keep evolving independently of each other. So keeping track of this is, is a bit of a challenge, but I think if we join forces, we can. Um, I uh, at While I was at Autumn, uh, one, of the speaker, uh, one of the speakers and the person in the audience suggested starting an interest group at Autumn on Nagoya, where we can keep track of how universities are negotiating this, uh, have template agreements that we can see. Uh, if, if a uh, university has dealt with a particular country, that knowledge doesn't have to be, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel again. We can learn from that experience. So trying to collect that information would be extremely useful. Uh, I think the EU is doing that. We can also join forces with them. We can also have an international working group, you know, eventually Autumn is an international body. We can, we can have people from other countries joining in and sharing information on how best to navigate this, what's worked, what hasn't worked, uh, you know, and, and, basically sort of educate each other on how to ne negotiate this very difficult uh, legal landscape that we are faced with. Well, I think the idea of a special interest group in Autumn is an excellent idea. So any listeners out there who uh, hear this podcast and are interested in it, please reach out to me because um, I'm happy to at least 
get the ball moving and see if we can get that special interest group formed. And and I think under Autumn's leadership that maybe some progress and, uh, you know, collaboration can take place that would be beneficial to Autumn members as well. So I think that's great. That's an excellent suggestion. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Ranjan, for sharing your experience and your expertise and diving into the impact and potential of the Nagoya Protocol. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. This is wonderful, Lisa. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.